So we're in Luke 2. We've been in Luke 2, um, looking at some of the stories of, of the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and the supernatural events surrounding that birth. Uh, we're finishing up today because um, we're going to uh, continue in our Luke series and kind of jump back forward into the later chapters of Luke, um, starting next week. Um, I believe we're in Luke 15 next week. Um, and so uh, as we're going through Luke, we're looking only at portions of Scripture um, that Luke has that the other Gospels don't have, um, just as we walk through this series called The Extent of Grace. And um, as we look at all these stories, we find um, some, some common themes through them. We've seen some of those themes in the parables that we did earlier uh, before Christmas, and uh, we've seen here at the Advent time that uh, there was uh, much to be said about the events surrounding Jesus' birth, the, the, the type of people that were speaking and the kinds of things that they were saying uh, were very significant. Um, and in this passage today, we find the only recorded story of Jesus between the, the kind of the baby, like really young stage, like the baby and infant stage, and adult ministry, okay? Except for this story, we have nothing in between that. We have nothing basically in between like maybe two-ish and 30, okay, but for what Luke gives us today. So today we get 12-year-old Jesus, which is just sweet, right? Because how cool is 12-year-old Jesus? Uh, we're going to find out in this story, and just if you can imagine yourself at 12, whoa, like those were interesting days, right? Significant growth happening, lots of changes, uh, confusion. Uh, wrestling and doubt and struggle and all these kinds of things, and it's it's really neat to see uh, that Luke goes to pains to make sure that we hear a story about Jesus at age 12. Um, so I want to jump right into this. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do and um, and uh, not a lot of time to waste. So let's pray and uh, let's 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 dig right in. Lord, thanks for this day. Um, thanks for these songs that we've just sung. Thanks for your word. Um, that, that, that comes through the mouths of your servants. Um, uh, it, it comes into the ears. Uh, it passes through our cognitive processes and through uh, your amazing design of our being. Uh, we receive not just intellectual growth and stimulation, but also spiritual development through uh, your divine word. Um, so as we've sung scripture, as we've read scripture, as we're going to spend uh, the next bit here, looking at Scripture, we eagerly anticipate uh, the work that only your Spirit can do uh, by taking the divinely inspired Word of God and applying it to us um, so that we might get a glimpse of uh, divinity here, so that we might take uh, another page out of uh, the book of learning and, and gain more insight as to who Jesus is. Uh, is and who Jesus was and what that means for us. Um, and God, we know that, that often we, we have barriers in the way of, of our learning and of our growth. And um, thank you that in this story today we see, um, we see a, a very human Jesus uh, with very human parents um, and, a, and a very human um, situation. Um, and through that, we are not discouraged in our humanity, but rather we are encouraged in it. Um, so show us so much today about Christ and ourselves. Uh, reveal to us just the glory of, of incarnation and how a, a 12-year-old Jesus uh, speaks clearly and, uh, and fruitfully, uh, not just to his surroundings, but also to us 
Uh, but we need your Spirit's help. Please um, alert and awaken our spirit um, by your Spirit to uh, hear, receive, and uh, be built up through your word today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we read for, uh, verses 41 to 52, um, and we left out verses 39 and 40, uh, which basically just kind of summarize the last couple of weeks, um, because Jesus' family had brought him to the temple and uh, had done some sacrifices and stuff according to their traditions, and uh, after they had done that, they went back to their own town of, of Nazareth. Now, Luke doesn't include uh, what Matthew does. Um, and that is that uh, at, at one point in the story of Jesus' early years, his family actually flees to Egypt. Um, and so they run, because of Herod, they run away from uh, the yet again murderous Herod. Uh, this guy's just got it out for baby boys in his lifetime. And so he's, he's always wanting to kill baby boys, especially because he thinks there's a king among them. Um, and he's a megalomaniac, and he's incredibly insecure, and so he can't ever stomach the idea of there ever being another king. Um, and so he's a tool of Satan, and he slays other people in the effort of trying to end the life of Jesus um, at, at a very young age. So, so Jesus' parents actually flee to Egypt, and uh, we don't have a whole lot of indication as to when... Um, when exactly they go back to Nazareth and make that their hometown, but that's where Jesus' hometown is. So that's why you've got kind of the three locations of Jesus and his, and his origins. Uh, the Old Testament talks about the son of David, uh, born of the line of David, coming from Bethlehem, right? And so we saw that earlier in the story because that's where Jesus was born, because that's where his family was from, and Joseph went back there for the census. We also hear speak of, of a prophet coming from Nazareth, um, and so that's why we have Nazareth as Jesus' hometown, and uh, that's where he kind of grew up and, and had his childhood. And then also there's a prophecy about how the son is called out of Egypt. Um, and so the whole kind of fleeing to Egypt to hide from the slaughtering madman, Herod, uh, brings that prophecy to fruition. So we've got really complicated stuff going on, all of which was predicted at minimum 600 years before Mary and Joseph even existed. Okay, just really strong uh, uh, validity uh, in the, the, the prophecies of the Old Testament and how they, they pinpoint that this is the Son of God who is to come. And so if you look at verse 40 of chapter 2, Jesus is in Nazareth, and it says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And so Luke here summarizes the childhood of Jesus uh, by compressing the first 12 years into that verse right there. <laughs> that tells you what Jesus is up to after he's dedicated at the temple until our story, which is Jesus at 12 years old. So that's a, a whole section of his life compressed into one verse. Jesus grew up. That's what Luke says. Jesus grew up, right? He became stronger. Like, obviously, that's what happens when boys grow up. They, they get stronger. Uh, and, and he also grew in his mind. He gained wisdom, okay? He didn't know things. He began to discover things, and then later he would learn and master things, okay? So Jesus went through this process of childhood. And then in verse 52, which is the, the other side bookend of our passage today, it says this, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
And so here again, we've got a summary at the end of the chapter where Luke describes Jesus' life from after this 12-year-old scene that we're about to look at into, I don't know why I'm doing that today, into adulthood. Okay, so again, we see another summary statement, and it basically says Jesus grew. He kept growing. He increased then in wisdom and in stature. And so he went through puberty, and he hit a growth spurt, and he got a little taller, and he got a little broader, and he got a little stronger, and he also studied, and he learned, and he grew intellectually, and he did all of these things, and he grew also in favor with man. What does that mean? That means he built relationships. He gained respect, and he gave respect. So he had a relational component to his growth as well. He didn't remain a child. He grew into manhood in regards to the way he interacted with people in regards to the conversations that he could have and the relationships that he could develop. Right? Jesus grew in all these ways. And what's probably most important is that he grows in favor with God. What does that mean? That means he's continuing to understand who God is and who he is in light of who God is. We're going to see a section uh, in, our verse, or in our passage today about how Jesus knew what he was in regards to the Trinity, even at age 12. And so Philip Ryken, he's a guy who helps us study the book of Luke, he says these verses testify to the physical, intellectual, spiritual, and relational development of the Son of God. Okay? This passage helps us understand the full humanity of Jesus. Jesus was completely, totally, and utterly a human being. But in his humanity, he was no less divine. Jesus was the Son of God from all time, eternity past, involved in creation, did not have a beginning, does not have an ending, and yet Jesus came in flesh and blood as a baby who grew into a child, who grew into an adolescent, who grew into a man. Both of these things are real and true and exist in uh, God the Son. And so today I want to look at what this humanity of Jesus means for us uh, as we take a look at this story of the 12-year-old boy uh, and see three things mainly. Number one, we're going to see what we are, what we are as humans. Number two, we're going to see what we can be. And then finally, number three, we're going to see how we will get there. So first we want to look at what we are. The fact that Jesus became a man is something... Uh, incredibly important that speaks to the reality of us as human beings. Okay. So we know that we, when we look at Genesis, we know that we as humans were created in God's image. We are unlike all the rest of creation in the fact that we can reflect God's glory in particular and distinct ways that other things cannot. Right? And so we do that through the way that we rule and, walk, uh, and, and, and uh, steward the earth. Uh, we do that in the, the intellect that we carry. We do that in the, in the image that we have. We do that in the fact that we can reproduce in our kind and we can teach and, and, and grow and develop a society. Uh, we do that in so many ways that we uh, point to the image of God. Yet we recognize that we fall short of the glory of God. Right? Because of our sin, we have broken the realities of our humanity. And so we are far less than what God originally designed and intended us to be because we have sinned, right? Our first parents sinned. Every parent ever since has sinned. Every child of every parent has sinned ever since. And we, too, are in that same category. And so, therefore, we are not the same as, as what we originally were meant to be. We fall short of the perfect imaging of God, the perfect glory of God. But the fact that God sent Jesus and Jesus became a man shows us that God has not cast aside humanity, right? 
God has not said you're so dirty, you're so filthy, you're so worthless, you're so broken that I don't want anything to do with you. God actually validates our humanity by becoming a human, even after we've ruined the entire enterprise of humanity. God still smiles down on humanity because Jesus is a man. It's unbelievable that God would say, I'm not only going to validate the fact that you are still mine, but I'm going to become one of you. Right? God has been calling us up to himself, but now finally he's showing his perfect plan, which is that he always along the way intended to come and pursue us. The coming of Jesus brings dignity and value and worth again. To the human race. It shows us, though you have missed it, I'm not giving up on you, right? And we need to hold on to the fact that God came as a man and believed fully this truth that Jesus was both God and a man. There's a couple of different heresies, ancient heresies. They're kind of just um, things that people started to believe incorrectly about the humanity of Jesus. One of those heresies is the heresy of docetism. And docetism, uh, the belief of docetism developed out of a dualistic philosophy uh, that viewed matter as evil and spiritual reality as good. Okay? So this growing sect back in, uh, it was like, what, the, the 120s? Uh, after Jesus, so 150-ish years after Jesus, um, they, started, they started to say that everything that is physical is evil and only that which is spiritual is good. And then they took the story of Jesus and said, well, yes, he's God's son, but he basically just appeared to be a man because flesh and blood and, and things of matter, those things are evil, so God could have never really become a man because that means he would have become evil. And so he was just a spirit projecting the reality uh, of humanity through some supernatural magic trick. And he just pulled it over on everybody and ha-ha, gotcha. But still God maintained this idea, or they, they taught then that God maintained this idea that, that the matter of the world is evil, right? And the scriptures don't point to that truth. The, the, the scriptures point to the fact that we've broken matter, Right? but that matter is in the process of being redeemed and is still highly valued by God, and so much so that God took on matter and became a man, right? And so in Jesus, we see that matter is not disposed of, that God is not just simply scorning it and frowning upon it, but he's actually seeking to redeem it. That's the beautiful reality about not just our bodies and not just our humanity, but about our planet, <laughs> right? About things like food, and, and government and, and, and all the realities that we see in our world that are broken and dysfunctional and, and sometimes so jacked up that we just get cynical and we think nothing's going to work. It's all burning, you know, and going, you know, we get this sense that it's just so bad. Well, the, the humanity of Jesus pulls us out of that idea and says, no, 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 no. Jesus validates matter and does not call it all evil. And so, therefore, we should pursue these things and seek redemption in these things, and see that God is bringing about good through these things, even though there's brokenness in all of these things, right? And so we maintain fully that Jesus became a man, and that in that reality, um, he shows us that humans and matter are still good in the eyes of God, and things that God seeks to 
redeemer. So that's important to see in this incarnation of Jesus and how, how fully human Jesus was speaks to this reality for us. Um, secondly, we can see what we can be. So first we just see that, that even as broken humans, we still have value to God, right? Even as sinful, broken humans in a sinful, broken world, we still have value to God. The humanity of Jesus shows us this truth. And the second thing is the humanity of Jesus shows us something about what we can be. You see, Jesus, because he was fully man, he shows us a picture of perfect humanity, and he shows us the, the, the possibility of relationship with God even as a human being. Jesus shows us this full beauty. And in this story, we see this, this, this cognizant reality for Jesus, how, how, he's, how he's aware, even at the age of 12, of, of a special relationship that he has with God, and, and how that special relationship he has with God is something that is affecting everything he does with his life, right? So in this story, um, uh, Joseph and Mary are in Jerusalem for a festival, right? They're, they're going there for Passover. It's something they do every year, okay? So this is something Jesus did all throughout his childhood. He came to Jerusalem again and again and again, um, every single year for this festival. And now at age 12, they come again, and that's when the story is told. And that's a significant day and a significant time for Jesus because he's approaching bar mitzvah. Okay? Jesus is approaching a time when his Jewish community would begin to recognize him as a functioning man. And he's walking in this new reality where he's looking forward to what it's going to be like for him to be a contributing man in this Jewish society. Right? So this, this journey has spe uh, special significance to Jesus. Now we got to think, as you, as you walk through this story, it can be a little confusing because you're like, wait a minute, Jesus is like a rebel child, right? It's like, is he like kind of dissing his parents and, and kind of skirting off his responsibilities and, and you know, making them all afraid? Is, is there something really weird going on here? Um, and culturally, there's a lot of things that we need to understand here. First and foremost, Jesus and his family would not have traveled alone, Okay. They would have been a part of a significantly large caravan of people traveling from the area of Nazareth, which is up near Galilee, down to, or up to, because it's up a mountain, um, to Jerusalem. Okay? And so Jesus and his parents and his family, they're traveling with friends, they're traveling with neighbors, they're traveling with aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and cousins and grandparents and, and just this huge group of people. Because number one, it'd be, it'd be dangerous to travel as just a family by yourself, right? You've got no protection from hoarders and anybody that's going to come in and marauders and, and, you know, get a hold of you. So a group is, is more safe to travel. Um, and then also you've got the celebration aspect of this journey. And we walk through, remember the songs of ascent uh, in Psalms that we walked through? Uh, those psalms were probably being sung by this group of people as they were journeying up to Jerusalem. There, it was a worship, like a traveling worship caravan. Like they were journeying together with anticipation of the day of Passover because it was a significant moment of remembering all that God had done to deliver his people out of Egypt. Right? And so they're like, they're stirring one another up in faith and good deeds. They're encouraging one another with song. They're lifted in their spirits. It's just a communal celebration. So just as they would have journeyed to Jerusalem in that pack, they also would have journeyed away from Jerusalem in that pack. And I learned today that often, or this week, that often the men and the women would travel separately. Like just like the, the gals are up there and the guys are back here or vice versa. Like not 
not like they couldn't see each other, but di different packs of people hanging out with different responsibilities and different age groups of kids divided amongst them. And so if that's the way that they traveled away from Jerusalem, it kind of can make sense that they wouldn't have known exactly where Jesus was. Like Joseph might have been like, well, Jesus is still with the younger kids. And all the younger kids are with Mary. And so Jesus is probably up there with Mary and his younger siblings. Whereas Mary might have thought, well, Jesus is really, you know, excited about this whole manhood thing. And he's back traveling with the men now and his older cousin, uh, John. And, you know, that's like, that's where he's at now. So it, it kind of makes sense that both of them may have just assumed that Jesus was with the other or was with part of the other caravan. Okay? And so that's kind of culturally what's going on in this whole situation. And then we get to the fact that they, they discover when they, they arrive that they're camp out on their way back home, that they're all going to get together and, you know, start up a bonfire and, and um, you know, set up their tents and everything on their journey home. That's when they finally realize, whoa, Jesus is not here, right? So they journey back. So they journey forward a day, then they journey back a day. Okay, that's the second day. And then they're in Jerusalem the third day, searching for Jesus everywhere. Okay, that's why it says three days that uh, they didn't find him. So, verse 46 says, after three days they found him. And where is he? He's in the temple. Jesus is sitting among the teachers, he's listening to them, and he's asking them questions. Verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In verse 50, And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Okay, so we've got this, this, this you know, complex situation with all these people and all this traveling and, and all this confusion. Um, and Jesus says to them, why, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? These are the first recorded words of Jesus, like the earliest, right? This is the youngest voice from Jesus we hear. And it's not too uh, different than what we see when he's older, right? How often does Jesus teach and provoke and pull out by asking questions, right? So already Jesus is operating in this significant wisdom that sometimes perplexes the hearers in order to begin to, to kind of prick the conscience and work toward pulling out some learning and some understanding in the midst of this, right? And so we can, we can dismiss that this was, this was an a, a, you know, a, a adolescent disrespectful to his parents, right? We can dismiss this because of his parents' response, okay? His parents' response was not combative. His parents' response was not punitive, his parents' response was, was not anger. His parents' response was puzzled, right? They were like, what does that mean? <laughs> okay? If Jesus was giving them a proverbial middle finger, they wouldn't have said, what does that mean? Right? They would have said, get back over there right now, kid. Go home with brothers. We'll talk about this later. Right? Like, that's not their response. Their response is, that's weird. Right? Like, they don't, they don't get what's going on, right? And this also isn't on Jesus' part. This isn't dismissive of his parents. He's not just like, whatever, you guys, right? Because look at the next verse. Look at verse 51. He submits to them, okay? 
Luke says very plainly, Jesus submits to his parents and then they go home. Okay, so Jesus is not unsubmissive in this moment or in his life, right? And so we maintain that Jesus in this moment even is sinless. So what is this? Like so much of what Jesus says in his ministry as an adult, these statements are revelatory. Okay, they're, they're uncovering. They're, they're opening something. Jesus here is speaking about what he knows he's here on the planet, on the earth, to do. Okay? He already understands that he has a task at hand and that he's been sent with an assignment. And he's identified with that assignment deeply. Right? He speaks to the fact that he's supposed to be doing what his father does. Okay? The direct translation of this would be, I'm, I'm in the things of dad. I'm in the things of my father. Okay? It, it'd be like a son saying, I'm, I'm learning the family business. I'm here with dad, where dad goes, where dad is, where dad does what dad does so that I can learn what dad is doing because I'm about to do what dad is telling me to do. Right? Another translation says, I'm about the business of my father. So Jesus recognized at 12 that he had this special mission, this task ahead of him. And also, Jesus speaks here to the special relationship that he has, right? Father, the idea of God as father was, was a really general idea to, to a Jew in this day. Okay? They may have said something like, God is the father of Israel, meaning of the nation, right? That God, God is, is father to us. Um, that, that he is our father. But here in these, in these few words of Jesus, he speaks to the special relationship. He doesn't say God is our father. He says God is my father. Jesus already is recognizing this special relationship, and he's communicating that relationship to those around him. And so Michael Wilcox says that both of these truths, the fact that he is the son of God and the fact that he has come into the world so that others may become sons of God, are implied in his words. Jesus says, this is my father, and then later we see that Jesus teaches us to pray to our father, right? Jesus is the one in perfect union with God the Father so that he might reestablish the, the union between God the Father and his other daughters and other sons, that we might become daughters and sons of God. And Jesus is the gateway for this to happen. And because he took on human form, he can become the mediator between God the Father and God the Father's lost children to make them his own again. Jesus, in his humanity, becomes this mediator. I know the Father intimately and perfectly and without brokenness. And so I'm going to usher you back into a place where you can again know your Father where you can know the one who made you, that you can intimately hear from him and understand what he has done and who he is in your life. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 2, 5. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, I've never been through mediation, but I would imagine if you go through mediation, you would want a third party that understands the position of both the other parties involved in the mediation. Right? You would want a good mediator to be sympathetic to both sides of the story so that they might be able to say, here's a good compromise for us to come to. Right? I see your side of the story, I understand that, and I see your side of the story, and I understand that, and here's what I'm proposing. You let go of that, you let go of this, you take on that, you take on that, and let's come together in the middle and we can live at peace 
We can find reconciliation. We can find a way to move forward in unity. That's what Jesus does. He looks at the Father. He says, I, I am eternal. I am holy. I am sinless. I am with utter perfection. And he looks at us and he says, I, I am human. I know struggle. I know, I know weakness. I know what it means to grow and learn and, 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 and strive. I know these things. And so he can come between the two and say, let's make peace. I'll make peace. Because he was fully man, because he maintained the full Godhead, the full godness that, he, that he's always had, he's able to be our mediator. He's able to be the one in the midst of us, making peace between us and God. And so Jesus shows us so much about this amazing relationship that he, uh, that he has with the Father. And he shows us how his humanity is going to bring us back into the relationship that has been broken. And then also Jesus shows us what humanity's full potential is. Because Jesus was a sinless man, we see what we were originally meant to be like. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus gives us a picture of the full beauty of humanity again. Right? And what is that picture when we look in the Gospels? What is that picture? That's kneeling down and taking kids on his, on his lap, right? Children that are, that are kind of pushed to the sides of society, not considered fully functional until they reach particular... Jesus pays particular attention to them, right? Jesus stops and listens and pays attention to people like prostitutes and tax collectors, Right? Jesus is reaching down and bending down low with compassion, right? He's standing up to arrogant religious pride. He's calling out those who would use their position in religion to, to belittle others, right? He's calling that out. The full humanity of Jesus shows us just such a beautiful redemptive picture of what we can be, okay? When we look at Jesus, we have hope for what he can make us like. We see that we are dignified and treasured and loved, but also we see that he shows us the full potential of what a human can be. Because now through him, we begin to follow in this new humanity. We see that we can glorify God with our lives once again. But I think thirdly, the humanity of Jesus shows us how we're going to get there how we're going to get to that place of looking like a real human again, of believing like a real human again, of living and loving and serving and giving like a real human again. How, how are we going to get back to that place? And the answer is slowly, through growth and through learning and through striving and going through a process of development. This is crazy when you think about it, that Jesus, in his humanity, walked the same slow and gradual path toward maturity that we do. Think about that. God the Son, forever present in the Trinity, with no beginning and no ending, who existed at creation, who lifted mountains up out of their seabed and created the land, that Son of God was a baby who had to grow in strength to become a boy who had to grow in stature until finally one day he was able to lift a stone 
to help his dad with carpentry tasks. That's, that's nuts. That's how far God went to show us our value as humans and to rescue us out of our brokenness and restore us to a relationship again with our Father. That he who had no limits suddenly knew limits. Right? We see that Jesus actually has to learn to talk. <laughs> he's the Word made flesh, John says in chapter 1. He's, he's the very manifestation of God's Word, and yet as a baby he has to learn how to bab 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 babble and finally get out dada and mama. I don't know what they are in Hebrew, sorry, and, or Greek. And, and, and yeah, potter. Huh. Um, and, and, and then he has to move into learning to read. Right? And then he goes through the process of learning to read not just the modern things that they were reading in school, but actually learning to read the Torah, learning to read the law of God. Jesus went to school with all the little Jewish boys and memorized the Bible. Right? He didn't start spitting out Isaiah in the manger. It was later. He learned. Okay? This uh, contradicts another... Uh, false teaching Apollinarianism, I think, which says Jesus was a man but had the mind of God. That's not true either. Jesus was fully man in his body and in his mind. He had to grow and learn and develop even mentally, right? And you got to keep in mind, Jesus didn't just grow from baby to boy and, and from boy to man. Um, he also grew from, from this stage all the way to 30. So he went through his 20s before he even started public ministry. Jesus had a lot of growing and development, and it was just like your growth and my growth and our development. It was slow, right? We see with this story, in the midst of his growing and developing, there was, there was some complicated scenarios, right? Sinless, yes. Uncomplicated, no, right? He still navigated the complex situations of relational dynamics within a large family, right? In a, in a very open community. He still had to figure out the proper times to say the proper things, right? And though sinless, he still had to navigate the process of dealing with sinners, which, I mean, how easy is that? It's tough. Jesus has to deal with sinners too, just like you and I. And so all of these things show us so much about the, the patient and arduous task of growing into maturity. How many times do we put undue pressure on ourselves because we think we've got to be somewhere that we aren't yet, right? We've got a timeline on ourselves for some strange, crazy reason. And when it comes to spiritual things, it feels like we do it even more, right? It feels like we're even heavier and harder on ourselves because we're in the church and because we should know that and we should be there. And, and I'm a Christian, so I should... What? What? You should grow slowly and struggle as you go along. That's what you should do, right? And that's also the should that we should have before other people. Well, they're a Christian. They should. They should what? They should grow slowly and struggle as they do. So what do we get to give? We get to give grace and not condemnation. We don't bring judgment on the slow growers because we recognize we're a slow grower, and we recognize that Jesus in his humanity validates our slow growth. Right? He doesn't thump us on the head, say, speed it up, kid. Right? There's, there's so much comfort 
in this. Jesus had to learn and he had to grow. It's comforting to know that our Savior understands what it's like to go through the growing pains of life, Philip Ryken says. Also, I want to point out one other small thing. Look at Mary. Look at Mary in verse 51 toward the end of it. It says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So in the second chapter of Luke, we have this phrase or something very similar to it three times. Three times. Mary treasured things in her heart. Okay. One small aside, this suggests that what Luke is writing in Luke 2 is an eyewitness account from Mary. Biblical scholars think Luke sat down with Mary and said, tell me a story, and started writing. Okay? Mary treasured these things in her heart. Who, who else knows that but Mary herself, more than likely? Right? And we see that it's in stages. All along the road, Mary's scratching her head. She's thinking deeply on these things that are going on. Right? It's cool because it shows us that she didn't quite realize the full extent of what all this meant. Right? She was on a road of discovery. I mean, she had an angel show up and announce this stuff to her. And it's still puzzling to her when Jesus is 12. Right? Moms, you got it figured out when your kid's 12, right? That's when it's all good. You get it all figured out then. No, Mary didn't either. And God was Jesus' dad. I mean, holy cow, how comforting is this? Because there's no condemnation on Mary here, right? Luke doesn't take Mary's thought, yeah, and I, I, I had to think about that for a little while. Luke doesn't take that and pen, yes, yeah, slow, stupid Mary, had to keep thinking on that. Even 12 years later, knucklehead didn't get it, right? That's not in the scriptures at all. No condemnation on Mary for this slow growth. Right? And look at what she got, guys. Again, she got an angel. Right? She got shepherds showing up saying, uh, we just had a choir from heaven sing God's glory and your son's the Messiah. Right? She had that. She had what we did last week where Simeon holds up the baby in the temple and, and, and makes these dramatic declarations about his life. She had a lot going on. A lot of revelation, and still 12 years old Jesus is by her side, and she's pondering stuff. Let's be gracious, first to ourselves and secondly to others, as we ponder these things, as we think about the meaning of the words of Jesus, as we consider who he is, as we consider the implications of all these things. Shake off, listen, just... Just shake off that condemnation that says I should be somewhere. Right? Shake that condemnation off. You are where you are by the grace of God. And you will be what you will be by the grace of God. And all along, it is not on you to earn his approval because he's given it to you as a gift of his grace. Right? Does it mean stop learning? Never. But get out from under that condemnation and let everybody else out of it. For those of us that are prone to religious judgment. It is so comforting to know that growing and learning is not condemned in Scripture. And that our Savior actually went through it. 
and that Jesus understands. Final verse, Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. This is about Christ. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Okay? That combats all of those heresies. In every respect, Jesus was made like us. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Right? And so when it's difficult to endure this slow maturing process, when it's difficult to have a body, <laughs> when it's difficult and limiting to have a mind, when it's a struggle to interact with sinners and to figure out relational dynamics, right? When all these things are tense and they cause us anxiety and maybe sleepless nights, we can know that Jesus understands. Yet, he's overcome the world in his perfect, sinless completion of a human life. And he can lead us into the beauty of a restored humanity because he's making us back into what God had originally designed to, us to be. And listen, we know it's not going to be finished here. One last glorious thing that the humanity of Jesus shows us, when he rose, he rose bodily. Okay? Jesus was touched. He ate. Okay? He was physical after the resurrection. And in that physical state, he ascended into heaven. The resurrection body of Jesus points us to the hope of our future. We will one day be completely restored. We will eat, we will be touched, and we will ascend to the throne of God because Jesus did it before us. This is our guarantee by faith because Jesus came for us and he lived for us and he's risen again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this life of Christ that is sometimes just confounding to think that the fullness of God dwelt in human form, that Jesus took on flesh, did not dispose of his divinity, but rather took on hum humanity and shows us so much about your grace and your compassion for us when being alive is hard, when, when growing as a human is, is a struggle. And God, we know that, that we didn't stop growing when we got out of childhood and through adolescence and into adulthood. God, we know today we're still growing in so many ways. And so I pray, God, that you would lead us to understand how compassionate you are toward us and that through that compassion we would have comfort and encouragement, that the oneness that we enjoy with God the Father because of Jesus the Son would be something that invades every aspect of our lives so that one day that we can just slough off all this pressure that we put on ourselves and all this condemnation that we put on others. That, God, we can move into a, a, a future filled with just loving compassion for one another, grace toward the stumbling and the, the struggling and the less mature, and grace toward ourselves as we mature, and grace, too, for the sinner who doesn't understand a thing about Jesus yet. God, make us these compassionate people, just like Christ is currently our compassionate high priest. There's no hope for the world without these things. Would you give us them by your spirit?
and encourage us in them and grow us ever so slowly, but by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, guys. This morning, the communion elements representing the body and the blood of Jesus take on so much meaning as we think deeply on the humanity of Jesus. Uh, and we've said this before, that, that the humanity of Jesus made Jesus approachable. And because Jesus was approachable, he became killable. And so what happened? We, we broke him. We killed him. We, we tore him apart. That's represented in the communion bread this morning when we take communion. So we're going to sing. And as we do, please come forward, take communion. Remember Christ's body broken for you and his blood shed for you. Let's stand and sing these final songs this morning. <laughs>